0: Isaac into getting the blessing and so not only has he he gotten the birthright but he gets the blessing and when Esau discovers the deception he is angry 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 and we read in verse 41 of chapter 27 Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him he said to himself the days of mourning for my father are near then I will kill my brother Jacob Now the idea of not getting vengeance on your brother or brothers uh, while your dad is still alive in order to spare him of grief on top of grief on top of grief is a theme that we'll see throughout the entire rest of the book of Genesis. But at this point Esau is holding a grudge against Jacob. He is a man of the field. He is a man to be reckoned with. And Jacob decides to hit the road. And this is where the story of the patriarch Jacob begins to form in the Bible. And Jacob has a dream while he is on the run. He's in a place he calls Bethel. And he sees in this dream the angels ascending and descending a ladder. And the promise of descendants is made to him by God. And as he continues on his journey, Jacob meets Rachel in the area of Haran, where his family has, has come from, the family of Abraham has come from. But her father tricks Jacob into marrying Leah. And so here is Jacob who is a trickster and a deceiver who is being deceived by his father-in-law Laban and he tricks Jacob into marrying Leah first in chapter 29 which does not lead to domestic harmony when he and, and, and Rachel and Leah begin to try and start their family. And it begins to to be a mess at this point. And this includes not only Leah and Rachel, but includes their handmaids in order to bear children. And the order of the children that come are Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun. And then comes Joseph, big name in the Old Testament. He is later replaced with Ephraim and Manasseh. And then there is Benjamin. When you throw Levi out in the book of Exodus, and you throw Joseph out, and you have Ephraim and Manasseh, there you have the twelve tribes of Israel that go into the promised land under Joshua. There's also at least a daughter by the name of Dinah who will figure into this story a little bit later on. But Jacob is prospering, and his animals and his, his livestock are prospering, which causes no end of heartburn to his father-in-law Laban. And it gets tense between these two men and Jacob decides to head off to Canaan. And on the way, in chapter 32, there's this strange little story of Jacob wrestling with God. And just as he's about to prevail, the guy he is wrestling with that turns out to be God touches the inside of his thigh and, and disables Jacob. And Jacob walks with a limp from there on out. And on the day that he is reunited with Esau, he's thinking that Esau has come to kill him, but Esau is actually wanting to be reunited and everything is happy at this point, and they settle in Shechem. But it doesn't stay very settled for very long, as the rape of Dinah takes place there by Shechem, and the revenge of two of these sons, Simeon and Levi, through their ruse and their deception, which they probably learned very well from their father, force him to move again back to Bethel. And God appears to Jacob at this point and changes his name to Israel. And so this is where the tribes of Israel get their name. Jacob is getting his name changed by God to Israel. And in chapter 35, verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. And life basically carries on for, for Jacob, which brings us now to one of these sons who becomes one of the great patriarchs, Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's favorite. And the sign of favoritism is a coat of what? Coat of many colors. Technicolor coat, right? Which causes all of his brothers to just despise him. He's wearing this coat around and it's just a sign of the fact that he is favored among all of his, 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 his father's sons. And Joseph, you know, to no end is creating problems himself in this area. He has two dreams, which it just doesn't help his cause in the least. In one, all of the sheaves that have been gathered up by his brothers bow down to his sheaf, And then in a second dream, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bow down to him. And the brothers say, we can't stand this guy. And they decide that they have to do away with Joseph. But when Reuben hears about their plan to kill Joseph, he rescues Joseph by arguing his brothers out of the death and from the certain death, but they still they throw him into a pit. And later in that day, while they're eating a meal and trying to decide what they're going to do with their brother, they sell him to a caravan that is headed to Egypt laden with, with spices. And they tell their father Jacob that Joseph was killed by wild animals. And they take that coat of many colors and they dip it into the blood of a male goat and it's just soaked with blood and they take it to their father uh, Jacob and he weeps over the apparent death of his son Joseph. But Joseph is now in Egypt and he is bought by a fellow by the name of Potiphar in chapter 39. He does well. He's a handsome fellow. Potiphar's wife notices him And she wants to have a sexual relationship with him when Potiphar's back is turned, maybe away on business or something. But Joseph refuses. And is thrown in jail after she lies about the incident, saying that he was the one that tried to attack her, then the other way around. But while he is in prison, he encounters Pharaoh's uh, chief cupbearer, and he encounters Pharaoh's baker. And they have a dream. And Joseph is pretty good with dreams. And he interprets the dream for them. The cupbearer is going to be restored to Pharaoh in three days. The baker hears this. It sounds pretty good. He talks about his dream, which involves uh, three baskets and uh, the, the, the birds eating out of the basket that's on top of his head. And the, the, the interpretation that Joseph gives is not that great. The baker, instead of being relieved of his prison sentence and restored to Pharaoh in three days, is going to have his head literally lifted off by Pharaoh and he is going to be executed. And that cupbearer gets out of prison just the way that Joseph said he's going to get out. But he forgets. Kind of convenient. He conveniently forgets about Joseph. Until one day, Pharaoh has a dream that causes him to to lose a lot of sleep and, and causes him a lot of anxiety. And there's nobody that can interpret the dream. All of the magicians, all of the, the, uh, the, the sorcerers in Egypt, they can't tell Pharaoh what's going on in this dream. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer has this epiphany. I remember there was a guy that I was in prison with that was really good at interpreting dreams. And the cupbearer mentions the special gift of Joseph to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh calls Joseph to come forward and, and he says, Can you tell me what the meaning of this dream is? And Joseph says, I'm going to give all glory to God in this thing. It's not for me, but it's God that's going to do this for you. And he interprets the dreams, as you know, with the cows, the the fattened cows and the the lean cows. It's about years of prosperity and harvest and overabundance and the years of famine. And it turns out to be so. And Pharaoh is so impressed that Joseph just rises up the, the ranks until he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. Now, meanwhile, back in the Promised Land, there is a famine. We're in chapter 42 of Genesis. And Jacob has to send his boys to Egypt, minus Benjamin, to see if they can get some grain. And while they're there, Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph wants to sort of play with his brothers. And he accuses them of being spies, which in their way of thinking is no way, that's not a joke. And that's the way that you lose your head. That's the way that you get executed in Egypt is by being spies. You're looking to spy out the undefended parts of our land, Joseph says to them. And they say, no, 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 we're just, we're just 12 brothers. The youngest one is with our father and the, youngest, and the second one is, is no more. And we're here actually on honest business. We want to buy grain. And they, he decides to keep Simeon while the brothers return. And, and Jacob, you know, later on will not let Benjamin go back with them. But the famine is so bad that they have to go back to Egypt to buy that grain. And finally, all of the stores that have run out, that famine is bad, they've got to go back. And Joseph plays another trick on them which causes the younger brother, Benjamin, to be kept. And, and Judah. Judah offers to take Benjamin's place. And it's at this point that Joseph lets the brothers know who he is. And it's a big reunion. It's very emotional. But the the, the great reconciliation takes place when Judah says, let me, instead of you, my brother, be a slave to Pharaoh's second-in-command. Well, Joseph lets the brothers know who he is. There's a great reconciliation and Jacob and his family moves to Egypt and the family settles in the land of Goshen in chapter 47. And now we're in chapter 50 and Jacob dies. And in this text that, uh, that Bob read for us tonight, we're, we're going to kind of slow down here, the brothers get nervous thinking that Joseph is still holding a grudge. And that, you know, what they're thinking is that Uh, Joseph has the power to pay them back in spades. That if Joseph wanted to, at any time, he could have had their their heads removed, he could have had them executed, could have had them enslaved instead of putting them in a place of luxury and a place where they are taken care of. And he hasn't. And they reason that he hasn't because... Again, they don't want, uh, Joseph doesn't want to grieve his father Jacob with the death of these sons. He's only waiting until J- uh, Jacob is gone before he, Joseph can strike out at his brothers. And so they send an in- intermediary with a message that is probably almost certainly a lie. And they say, verse 16, they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your Father. And when the message came to him, Joseph wept. And Joseph says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. One of the things that's probably said more than anything else in the Bible, these three words, don't be afraid. And then he says, I will provide for you and your little ones. And Joseph speaks kindly to them. Now, it is really kind of an amazing story. And you wonder, how can he do that? How is it that his character, after all of the wrong things that have been done to him and all of the ways that he has suffered in many ways unjustly, at least not in uh, equitably for the things that he has done or the things that he has said or for the way that he has behaved as a young man. How can he be that kind of an individual where he has somehow completely forgiven them? I mean, how are the pathways of his heart being rerouted away from revenge and from anger and resentment and from bitterness And from from tremendous vengeance and rerouted to kindness and generosity. Well, I think that there are two principles here that we see in, in Joseph's life. The first one, he says, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? He does not retaliate. He doesn't take vengeance on these brothers because he asks himself a question. Am I in the place of God? For Joseph, this is not just a question that has to be answered. This is, a, this is a way of thinking. It's not just a question to ponder and to meditate on. This is the way that Joseph thinks about life. Am I in the place of God? He's thinking to himself, really, who has the knowledge of what people really deserve and who has the right to give people what they deserve? And so at some point, he is thinking and has changed the way that he he acts in life, his ethic is being changed by thinking, "Am I in the place of God?" But even more profoundly to me is this one. He says, "You intended harm, but God intended it for good." You intended harm, you. And some of the older translations say evil. You intended harm, but God intended it for good. I mean, I think this goes way beyond the first. There's, a, there's an old commentary on Romans by an, an Old Testament scholar, very famous, died back in 1971, a fellow by the name of Gerhard von Rod. And in talking about Genesis 50 and Joseph, he writes about, about God incorporating man's evil acts into his salvation plans, which when you think about it, is a very radical way of thinking and explain some of the radical ways in which Joseph is, is relating to his brothers anew in light of the, of the revelation that he is their brother and, and he is going to speak kindly to them and take care of their little ones. What Joseph is saying is that God is, is not just merely stopping evil. He's not just stopping evil in its tracks, but more. He is not just thwarting evil, but He's using it to further His purposes. In other words, God does not merely stop evil, but He so completely frustrates evil as to accomplish His will rather than the will of the one that is perpetrating the evil upon a human being or upon the planet. In other words, God is so powerful and so wise that He is able to take evil and its plan and actually work the opposite. This is a bona fide example, I think, of Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 where Paul, in reflecting on his own life and the life of other believers and on Old Testament history, says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Someone might intend harm, but God can change it into good. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. God uses evil to do the opposite of what the evil intended. Many centuries later, the force of evil in the hearts of men in Jerusalem have come to a place where they have decided that Jesus has to die and they have decided that not only must he die but that he is going to he is going to be mocked he is going to be discredited and he is going to have to be crucified in order to completely put a stop to what it is that Jesus is teaching and doing and living in their time And there are even those that while Jesus is hanging on the cross saying He could save others, why can't He save Himself? Why can't He just come down off of that cross? There is a scene in uh, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ that I think uh, is, is incredibly poignant. While, while Jesus is, is being tortured and while Jesus is suffering and while He is being mocked and while He is being forced to carry His cross and while He is being crucified, the persona of Satan himself, this evil malevolent being, is seen in the crowd, moving through the crowd, observing and watching and smiling and, and, and obviously in glee over what looks to the malevolent being, to, to, to Satan, as a victory. That evil has triumphed. And in the very end, it's the Christ who's saying forgive them for they know not what they do. It's Christ crying out in forsakenness. Him being forsaken so that we never have to experience that. It's Him saying it is finished upon the cross and bowing His head and giving up His spirit and dying. And at that point, it looks like evil has accomplished everything. If you were to ask the disciples at that point, it would look like evil has triumphed, that, that good has lost once again to the bad, that evil has triumphed, that it is going to be another period of darkness over humanity. And that goes on for about three days. People wondering what's next. Wondering what in the world is going to happen. What is God going to do? How could God allow the Messiah to die? Not realizing that the Messiah had to die. Not only die, but to suffer and die according to Scripture. In order that all of our sins might be put on Him and that His righteousness could be put on us. That what looks like the cursing of hanging on a tree, what looks like the the, the triumph of evil is actually God saving the world and reversing the effects of sin throughout all of history, backwards in the present and forward into eternity. What was intended to do harm, what was intended as evil, God intended for good. What was a joke to the Greeks, what was foolishness and a stumbling block to the Jewish nation, became the wisdom of God for those who were being saved. And that is a theme that we see throughout the Bible of God working, not just with dysfunctional people, but even through the dysfunctionality of their sinfulness and their inability to make right decisions or to live very consistently for very long, for very long periods of time. It just seems like there are gaps. Of 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 lapses of integrity and lapses of judgment and lapses of, of of good moral character and yet God is able to take all of that and frustrate that evil and flip it over and able to bring about the salvation of people. The restoration of His good creation, of a uh, restoration of a relationship with His 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 human creatures. And for them not to be just sons and daughters of God through creation, but now sons and daughters through redemption, having been rescued. Rescued from their sins. That's a powerful God. And that's a mighty God. And that is a God whose love, His incredible, profound love, not only melts us, and 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 turns our world upside down but but inspires us to live a different kind of life knowing that whatever happens to us in this life God can can turn it God has the power to turn it into a good at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 one of the greatest statements on this in the New Testament is where Paul says, you know, where's the sting of death? where is it? Where is it? He says, "You know what? Death has been swallowed up in victory." And you know what he's saying there? He's saying that God is not just bringing a full stop to death. He's not just stopping death, but it's being swallowed up. When you swallow something, it you know you take it into yourself, and it makes you bigger. I, you know, if I you. Well, I don't eat cheeseburgers anymore, but if I was to eat a cheeseburger, which maybe one day I'll do again, if I was to eat that cheeseburger, it would become a part of me and become the greater part of me and make me bigger, hopefully make me smarter. I've always said cheeseburgers were brain food. And that's... yes, <laughs> And enchiladas. Enchiladas, soul food. I, I've told you this story before about um, when I was, I was in Israel, I had a dream that was so real, scared me to death, that somehow I had lost Ellen. And all during that day, because of the time zone changes and, and all of that, I, I was just anxious. And I couldn't wait to get on the phone to call Ellen and and was anxious, anxious, anxious. And as soon as I hear her voice on the phone, there is relief and, and there is there is... Not just relief, but there is a sweetness in the moment that would not have been there had I not been anxious and thinking about her constantly and anxious about you know, what has happened and, and worried about her. To hear that she is okay, all of that worry and all of that anxiety made the hearing of her voice sweeter. You know what I'm talking about. And ultimately, that's what God does with death. What was intended by Satan in Genesis chapter 3 as evil and harm, introducing sin into the world and death on its heel, death coming to all people. That because of the resurrection, because of the crucifixion, the burial, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the third day, death is not just stopped, but death has been swallowed up in victory. That somehow, the worst things that have ever happened to you, the very worst things that have ever happened to you, on that day that you receive your glorified, resurrected, immortal body, that all of the terrible, tragic, suffering moments of your life will somehow be swallowed up in that moment, making it the sweeter because they had happened, but now have been swallowed up into the victory. I just think, I don't have words... To talk about how great that moment is. That God is so powerful that He could take every tear, every cut, every broken place, every terrible memory, every pain, and use it to enrich the greatness of the blessing that comes to us. That's why we're courageous in suffering. That's why we're forgiving. That's why we're persevering. That's why we're humble. Am I in the place of God? You intended that for evil, but God intended it for good. The more I read Scripture and the, and the more I meditate on Scripture and the more that I think about the greatness of what it is that God is doing and has been doing and helping us to understand from Genesis all the way to the maps, I'm just filled with such an awe for this God. Maybe tonight you haven't given yourself to a God that powerful who is able to take all of those bad things that's ever happened in your life and not just forgive you of them, the bad things. Things that, that you have, have not only brought into other people's life, but brought into your own life. All of those terrible things that were in rebellion to, to His presence and His holiness. But you know that all of that can, can be done away with, and all of that can, can can be done away with at the beginning of a new life, a rebirth. And that God begins to work in your life in such a way that it's blessing after blessing after blessing. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that you go through some tough times. Everybody goes through tough times. Jesus, the most sensitive, perfect man who ever lived. And because of that, the more it pained Him and the more He suffered when the sin was perpetrated on His life by us. We do still live in a fallen world. But God is able to bless and to bless and to bless and to fill our hearts and to anoint our heads in the presence of our enemies and make us lie down beside still waters and to lay down in the green grass because He is our shepherd and we don't need anything else. If we can serve you in any way. We have some shepherds down here at the front. Spiritual leaders of our church family who are up here to greet you and to talk with you and to welcome you. Let's praise God together, and if you have any, come down and speak to the shepherds. Let's stand and praise God together. Peace, perfect peace.